and Andrew was definitely no stranger to us. You know, he served as our associate pastor from 2011 to 2015, and we are definitely blessed to have he and his family back with us. And, uh, and some of y'all may remember that Andrew's father actually pastored a church over here in Lakeland. Well, that was back in the late 80s, early 90s, I'm guessing. Is that right? Big, big, 90s. big 90s, okay. And uh, Andrew was a youngster running around there, so I can barely remember him from those good days. But uh, Andrew uh, actually attended a youth group here at our church, too, as a young man, and he graduated from Lake Gibson High School. He received his B.A. in History from Erskine College in 2001 and his Master of Divinity from Erskine Theological Seminary in 2011. He served in the New Birth ARP Church in Troutman, North Carolina, and the first ARP Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina, before coming to us. And... Uh, uh, back when they were at Erskine College, that's when Andrew met his sweet wife, Kristen. And uh, I got to admit, you had good taste there, Andrew. Sweet lady, Kristen. We're glad to have you. And along with their beautiful kids, uh, the boys, John, Joseph, and Luke, and little Sadie, we're tickled blessed to have you, your whole family here with us tonight. So I'm going to cut it short right there and welcome Mr. Andrew, Reverend Andrew, to the podium. Kenny's making me sound better and better each night. <laughs> well, if you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We started last night with the first half of this chapter and this letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Last night I mentioned that verses 3 through 14 were one long run-on sentence in the original Greek, and so it probably won't come as much of a surprise to you this evening then to hear that this passage we're looking at this evening, verses 15 through 23, is just the next long run-on sentence in the original Greek. This makes up one sentence that Paul had. It's almost as if he had so much to say in praise of God and in thanks to what God had done for him and for the Ephesians, that he just had to get it out as quickly as he could on paper. And of course, we are the benefactors of this. This is God's word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, not only for the original audience, the church there at Ephesus, but for us today as well. So let's hear then what God would have us uh, to hear this evening from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer together. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, once again this evening, we come to your word. We come to this letter that your spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write to that church there in Ephesus in the first century. A letter that is also by your divine uh, sovereignty uh, written to us today in the 21st century. And so we would ask that as we come to this text, that your spirit would move mightily among us this evening in opening the eyes of our hearts and our minds to perceive and to understand and to know, to truly know what is the hope to which we have been called and the inheritance that is ours and this power that is at work within us. Oh Lord, bless your word, bless its reading and its proclamation tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things we didn't get around to discussing last night was the setting and the context behind this letter to the Ephesians. And that's, of course, one of the most important things we can do anytime we come to God's Word is seek to understand what's the context, what's going on, what's happening that caused the apostle to write this letter, or what was happening at the church that they needed to be addressed. And so we asked some of those sort of investigative questions, the who, what, when, where, and why of any particular text. So what do we need to know then this evening? What would be helpful for us, not only in understanding this latter part of chapter 1, but really understanding where we're going in to tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening, and then in your further study of this book throughout the rest of the week and the rest of the month ahead, how, what is important for us to know? Well, the first thing that's going to be helpful is to know that Ephesians is one of what are uh, four letters that Paul wrote while in prison. These are in, referred to as his prison epistles. Paul was in jail, most likely in Rome, when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, as well as his letters to the Philippians and the Colossians, and also to Philemon as well. And of course, we know from the book of Acts that Paul was well acquainted with this church at Ephesus. He spent some two to three years during his third missionary journey establishing this church. Of course, Kenny mentioned this is the missions conference, and it's important to recognize this church is the outworking of Paul's missionary efforts, missionary efforts that were encouraged and supported by other churches in other areas. And so it's important that we, the church in America, support our missionaries as they go out through the world because they are planting churches and they are spreading the gospel in places that are far off from us. So anyway, Paul spent these years at this church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is located in what is today Turkey, in the modern-day nation of Turkey. It was one of the greatest cities in the eastern Mediterranean in the first century, and therefore it was an incredibly important city in the Roman Empire. It was a seaport which meant it, received, it saw a lot of trade ships come and go. It's, it was a wealthy city as a result, and it was well populated. Well over a quarter of a million people called Ephesus home. But its biggest claim to fame, a claim to fame that, that we still think of today, is that it was the home of the Temple of Artemis, which to this day is counted among the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an enormous temple. It stood on top of a hill and you could see it from everywhere in the city. An enormous temple dedicated to this pagan god Artemis. Well this temple and the various other forms of, of pagan worship were not only part of the spiritual fabric of Ephesus but also key to its economy. 
Again, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you may recall that while Paul was in Ephesus, while he was proclaiming this gospel, a riot ensued, a riot that was started by the silversmiths of the city because they made their living carving little, little idols of Artemis and of other gods. But as, as the gospel of Jesus Christ continued to take root and grow in that city, these silversmiths were losing business. And so they, they caused this huge riot, this huge uproar, and they went in to the, to the, the Colosseum there, or the arena there, and, and for two or three hours just cried out, great is Ephesus, or Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This paganism, this idolatry was a major part of the culture into which the gospel was preached and from which the church of Ephesus was born, out of this gross and rank paganism. And so many of the Christians there in Ephesus had made a very decided and very public break away from this pagan culture when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, we're kind of given a, an idea of how significant a break this was. We're told in that chapter that many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver would be a lot of money today. Uh, imagine then. This was the value of the books that they burned. This was the, the magnitude of the decision they were making to follow Jesus and to turn away from that former way of life. They not only abandoned that way of life, but, but they abandoned a lucrative means of earning a living. And they walked away from their standing in the public sphere. And you can imagine that they also probably walked away from, from important relationships with friends and family members. And all of this helps us to understand then this letter all the more. You see, unlike Paul's letters to the, to the Galatians or, or the Corinthians, there wasn't really a huge problem at Ephesus. There wasn't a dumpster fire burning that Paul had to write in order to address to extinguish the flames. It wasn't like the Galatians who were giving themselves over to false teachers. It wasn't like the Corinthians who were breaking apart in all these factions and all these divisions. No, there really wasn't anything like that affecting the church from within. Instead, Paul wrote knowing that, that this church at Ephesus, which by the way, when I say church, it was not like a great big church like we think of today. It was most likely a series of home churches, house churches. But he wrote knowing that, that they were facing the daily and increasing pressure from a very pagan and a very intolerant culture that didn't understand or appreciate these Christians or have any regard for them. Now, does that not sound somewhat familiar? A church in the midst of a culture that was increasingly pagan, increasingly intolerant, and increasingly not understanding of the church, the body of believers. 
That's one of the reasons that Paul opened this letter like we saw last night with this, this celebration of the spiritual blessings that were theirs in Jesus Christ. Because they needed to be reminded how much they had gained rather than looking back at how much they had lost or walked away from. Because they were reminded of what they walked away from every single day. And so Paul wanted them to appreciate, Paul wanted them to celebrate what was already theirs, irrevocably theirs in Jesus Christ. That's why he told them, as we saw last night, that they had been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. They were predestined for adoption. They had redemption and they had forgiveness by the blood of Christ. God's grace had been lavished upon them. They had been brought into the mystery of God's plan to unite all things in Christ. They had a lasting inheritance and most importantly, they had been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And now, having reminded them of all that, Paul says in verse 15 and 16, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I mentioned last night that, that Ephesians is really a letter of encouragement. Imagine how encouraging it would be if you received a letter from the Apostle Paul in which he said, hey, I'm giving thanks for you and I am praying for you on a daily basis. You all know the blessing of having people in your lives who are really and truly praying for you, don't you? You have certainly, I know this church, you have had experiences in your life when your fellow believers have come alongside you and you know that they are praying for you by name through the various hardships and the various circumstances that you're experiencing. And you know how that encourages your soul. Few things speak to your heart than knowing that your brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for you each and every day. And so the Apostle Paul tells them, listen, I am giving thanks to God for you because I heard of your faith. I heard of your love for all the saints and I am giving thanks for you. But more than that, I am also praying for you. And it was a very specific prayer that Paul prayed for them. Look at verse 17. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Paul's prayer was that God would grant the Ephesian Christians a knowledge of the blessings that were theirs in Christ. Now, we just went over that last night. Paul just cataloged for the Ephesians the blessings that were theirs in Jesus Christ. But now the emphasis is that the Ephesians would come to a greater and a deeper and a better realization of what those blessings meant in their lives here and now. You see, it's one thing to be told what you have, as we saw last night, but it's a whole other thing to come to an actual understanding of what you have. How many of you have ever watched the Antiques Roadshow on PBS? It's a great show, isn't it? It's one of those shows you're flipping through when nothing else is really on. You stumble upon it, and before you know it, an hour and a half has passed, and you've watched three episodes, right? 
And it's a great show. It's got a great idea line behind it. People bring in little trinkets, little valuables that they have that they've had sitting around their house sometimes for generations or they, they happen to pick up at the yard sale, the flea market, and they just want to see, is this worth anything? And of course, everybody in every episode, you're waiting for that big reveal, right? When, when someone brings something in that they found for $3 at a yard sale that the appraiser says is really worth $10,000. And, of course, their jaw is laying on the table, and they can't even put a sentence together. They're so surprised that this thing that they had laying around in their house that their kids were constantly knocking over is actually a priceless treasure. They had a treasure in their possession, but they never really knew it. Well, that's what Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to wrap their minds around as well. You have a treasure that is irrevocably yours in Christ, and you need to get it. You need to understand it. You need to know it. And so Paul's prayer is that God would grant them the spirit of wisdom and of understanding and of knowledge that they might really, really know what is theirs by faith. And in particular, as we see in verses 18 through 19, he prays that they might know three things. First, the hope to which they had been called, and then the riches of his glorious inheritance, and finally his power toward those who believe. And so the first is hope, the hope to which they had been called. Paul prays that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, Hope is, is essential to our faith, is it not? It is part and parcel of our faith. You think about that triad of virtues at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Hope necessarily flows from and is inseparable from our faith. Or you think about what the author of Hebrews has to say in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. The trouble is, in our day and age, the word hope has been so overused and so watered down that we really don't understand it, especially we in the church. So many people today use the word hope as if they're hedging their bets, like they're preparing for the worst. It's along the lines of, well, I'm not sure about this plan of mine, but I sure hope it works out. It's almost like people are, are sort of crossing their fingers, just kind of wishing that things will come together. But, but that's not true hope. True Christian hope, much like true Christian faith, is not the stuff of wishful thinking. True hope is marked by confidence. It's, it's certain. It's absolutely assured. It's putting your trust in what God has promised and knowing without a shadow of a doubt that he will deliver. So what is our hope? As Christians, what is our hope? Well, you might say, well, our hope is that when we die, we will be with him in heaven. And absolutely, that's our hope. And more than that, our hope is in the fact that one day Jesus Christ is going to return and we will be raised to new life and we will enjoy all the blessings of paradise for eternity. Or if we're going to borrow language from what we looked at last night, our hope is in God's plan for the fullness of time. Our hope is in God's plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. 
Now, I realize that for most of you, this isn't new information. If you've spent any time in the Bible, if you've spent any time in church, you've heard this over and over again. But Paul's prayer is that you just simply wouldn't hear it again tonight and file it away in the, oh yeah, I've heard that before category in your brain. No, Paul's prayer is that we might move from mental assent to actually coming to a living understanding of what this hope means for us right now. Christian, do you understand that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ means that our brightest days are yet ahead of us? That our greatest joys are yet to be experienced? And it means that we don't have to live in fear, we don't have to live in insecurity because of the dangers or the opposition that we face in this world. Our hope is the assurance that God is sovereign over all things, that He is sovereign over all of history, and that He is working all things together for good. You see, everything that comes to pass, and this is what we affirm as, as ARPs, this is what we affirm as Bible-believing Christians, everything that comes to pass, comes to pass by God's eternal decree and is moving us closer and closer to His ultimate plan to unite all things in Christ. And when you grasp that, when, when, when your knowledge turns to understanding, the face that you'll make will outstrip anything you've seen on that Antiques Roadshow. Because the treasure you'll realize you have possession of outweighs anything that you have ever seen them appraise on that show. Let's move on to Paul's second focus of prayer in this passage. Continuing on in verse 18, he also prays that we might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, inheritance in the saints. Now, you hear that and you may initially think that that's just really a rephrasing of his prayer about hope. And no doubt our hope and our inheritance sort of go hand in hand together. But that's actually not what Paul prays here. Look again at that verse. Look again at verse 18b. Paul prays that you may know what is uh, the hope to which you've been called and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The emphasis is not on what our inheritance is in him, but on his inheritance in us. We are his inheritance. We are his reward. We are his prize. And this isn't something Paul's sort of inventing out of the air here. No, this is, this is all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. God refers to his people. God refers to Israel in the Old Testament as his inheritance. And we see this most powerfully in Malachi chapter 3 where God says, They shall be mine, my treasured possession. And now in Christ... Uh, under the new covenant, God's inheritance has expanded to include not only the Jews, but also the Gentile as well. In the second part of chapter 2 of this letter, Paul emphasizes to these Ephesians that they had at one time been separated and alienated from Christ, but now they have been brought near and welcomed into his family. As one commentator, Peter O'Brien, puts it, God's people comprising both Jew and Gentile, are his inheritance. They are his own possession in whom he will display to the universe the untold riches 
of his glory. Now I want you to think about what this means about you. And I want you to think about what this means as us, as his church this evening. The Bible makes it crystal clear. And there's no escaping it. The Bible makes it crystal clear that Christians are strangers and aliens in this world. That we will be despised by the world. That we will be ostracized. We will be marginalized. The powers of this world will try to silence us. The Ephesians were experiencing this on a daily basis. Friends, we in this country are going to begin to feel and experience this more and more as the days go by. The world will not care one whit about us. And yet, what has God said about us? You are my prize. You are my reward. You are my inheritance. While the world may not value us, God has says, you are mine. We are of eternal worth and value in his eyes. And if you doubt that, if you're sitting here tonight thinking, eh, am I really? Then look no further than the fact that he went so far as to send his only begotten son to redeem us from sin and death. What an amazing thing is that. Are you not just blown away by the wonder and the grace of the gospel? To know that God has so valued you that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is there about us that is lovely? What is there about us that is desirable to God? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say nothing. Our sin makes us by nature children of wrath. Our sin puts us at enmity with God. We deserve nothing but his displeasure. And yet, as we saw last night, he has still chosen us because he loves us. And he has even set us as his inheritance. I wonder, did you know that you were worth that? Did you know that you had that sort of value? That God would count you as his prize? And finally, as we look at verse 19, Paul prays that the Ephesians might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. Now, this is Paul's last point of prayer for them, and it's the one that he, he builds upon and expands upon the most, and understandably so, because these Ephesian Christians were not powerful at all by worldly standards. And they were living in the midst of a city where spiritual warfare was rampant, and they were surrounded by these pagan and dark arts, and they may have been wondering, what, what resource do we have? What recourse do we have? What power do we possess? Paul's prayer is that they might understand just how much power they possess, just how much power is at work within them. In fact, the, the power, Paul says, that is at work within them, and friends, it's true for us, the power that is at work within us is the exact same power that God worked in exerting, he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the grave. When he raised him from the dead, when he seated him at his right hand, and when he gave him authority over all things, both in this age and the age to come. You see, the church today, 
the church throughout the world, the church in our nation, the Bartow ARP Church, we would be blessed indeed if we could come to a deeper and richer understanding of this power that is ours in Christ. We're going to look at it tomorrow morning, but in Ephesians chapter 2, we're reminded that for those of us who have looked to Jesus Christ in faith, this power has already been demonstrated within us. Because we were dead in sins, but now we are alive in Christ. Jesus Christ was once dead in the grave, but he was raised a new life on the third day. The same power is at work, both in him and in us. And what Paul wants us to see is that Jesus Christ still wields this power. Jesus Christ still wields this power even now. And I think some of you need to hear this. I think some of you need to be reminded of this right now, that God has placed all rule and authority and power and dominion under him. There is no power, there is no force, there is no person, there is no nation, there is no government, there is no virus, there is nothing that is more powerful than Christ. Christ rules at all time over all of these subordinate powers that we interact with in our lives. But I fear that sometimes we Christians act as if Christ has lost that power or if he has somehow lost control. And I'm here to tell you he has not. Jesus Christ is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is ruling over all things. He is bringing to pass everything that God has decreed. He is moving all of history ever closer to that point when God will unite all things in him. I wonder, do you believe that? Because the church in our nation over this last year has acted like it does not. There are too many professing Christians who act as if Jesus Christ has somehow abdicated his throne or as if the things that have happened in our lives are somehow out of control or unredeemable. Do you not understand that everything that happens happens because God has decreed it and he is bringing all things to one culminating point? And that is when he will unite all things together in Jesus Christ. So why do we act sometimes like we're so afraid? Why do we act sometimes like we doubt? Christ is in control. And nothing can happen apart from his control. We have to believe this. We have to rest in this. And I know it's easy to doubt it. And especially so when it seems like the powers of this world and the powers of darkness are only growing against us. And so that's why Paul prays for God to grant us a spirit of revelation and a spirit of enlightenment. Paul's essentially praying the same thing that Elisha prayed for his servant from our Old Testament reading. Do you remember that? That Patrick read for us? When when Elisha's servant looked out and all he saw was danger. All he saw was a threat. All he saw was an army that was too powerful according to him. Elisha reminded him not to be afraid and then prayed that the Lord would open his eyes to see the greater truth. He said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And what did he see? (laughs) Those who were with him were greater than those who were against him. The hills were filled with a heavenly army. His servant in that moment gained a spirit of understanding. 
he understood that though the enemy may be strong, God is yet more powerful. And this power and this authority has been vested in Jesus Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. We are the body of Christ. From the head, we draw our direction. From the head, we draw our strength. From the head, we draw our understanding. I realize that we are living through some of the most trying times that many of us can remember. And there have been plenty of reasons for things like discouragement and despair and anger and fear. But we don't have to live as captive, captives to those emotions. And so here's what I would challenge you. I would challenge you over the course of this next week. I would challenge you over the course of this next month. Make Paul's prayer here your own. Instead of, instead of going home and turning on the TV and ingesting that endless news cycle, or, or instead of opening up your phone and scrolling through social media for hours on end, how about you put that down and you spend more time in God's Word? How about you lay that, 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 those voices aside from this world and instead meditate on what is yours in Jesus Christ? Why don't you focus on the blessings and the hope and the power that is already yours in our Lord? Too many times we're, we're opening the back door to the world. We're opening the back door to the enemy. Instead of spending time on our knees in God's word, being fed and being reminded by him. I want to remind you of one last thing as we close this evening. It's actually a summarization of a point that Warren Wearsby makes in his commentary on this passage. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, Ephesus really was a great city. If we could have seen Ephesus in its heyday, oh my goodness, we would have been blown away. It was a powerful city. It was a wealthy city. It was admired by all the world. It boasted that, that temple to Artemis, one of the wonders of the ancient world. In the world's eyes, Ephesus was the epitome of success. But did you know that today Ephesus is nothing more than an archaeologist's playground? All the wealth, all the splendor is gone. If you were to look at that temple to Artemis, all it is is ruins. Its power and its influence is lost to history. But do you also know that the Christians who once lived there, the Christians who were daily despised and attacked by the pagans of that city, do you know where they are today? They're in heaven. They're in the very presence of God. Their hope has been realized. And their hope is our hope. Oh, may God grant us his spirit of wisdom. May he grant us his spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him that we may also know this hope to which he has called us. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, indeed, we come before you this evening and we confess that, that too easily and too quickly we allow the powers of this world or the powers of darkness to concern us, to distract us, to discourage us, to scare us, and we forget what is already ours in Jesus Christ.
And so we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you for this prayer by the Apostle Paul. And we would ask that you would, that you would help us to understand and to know the hope to which you have called us. But would you help us to, to find our worth in the fact that we are your inheritance? And would you continue by your Spirit's indwelling work, remind us of the power that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, would you build us up then in faith and in hope and in love? Would you help us to know that he who is for us and with us is greater than those who are against us? And Father, we would also pray that you would speed the day of Christ's return. When our faith will be sight. But until that day, give us strength. Give us hope. Fill us with your power. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.